Turn there in your pew Bibles, Psalm 15. But before we do that, let's also bow in a time of prayer. Father, we approach your word. We know that this is a task that we shouldn't take lightly. That as we read this, we are hearing your very inspired and inerrant word to us. We pray that we would treat it as that. We also pray that you would guide both the speaking and the hearing. That it would be done in a way which glorifies you and which is true to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 15, beginning at verse 1. A psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. Who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue. Who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man. Who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. Who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Thus ends the reading of God's word. People of God, who is worthy to be here tonight? Who is worthy to approach God's house and come into worship before him? This is a question that we can ask ourselves before a time of worship where we come in a special way before God. But how did we prepare our hearts for this? What we're doing is we're coming before the almighty creator of the universe, who is holy. Do we not need to prepare ourselves in, in any way for to do that? I would imagine that we all prepared ourselves by getting ready, by getting here, trying to get here on time, by doing the necessary arrangements to be here. But did we do more than that? Did we prepare our hearts? Did we prepare our minds? And say we even did that. Well, then the question is, still, are you worthy to be here? Do you have a right? What must you do to be acceptable to enter God's presence? See, what the psalm is getting after is a question. It's asking the question, who can dwell with God? It's a simple enough question, who can dwell with God? What it's actually getting at after is the conduct. What conduct enables communion with him? What must one do to be acceptable to dwell in God's presence? That's what this psalm is. The psalm, most scholars believe, was likely sung by worshipers as they would have headed to the tabernacle or temple. They would have sung this before going to make their sacrifices, before going to encounter God. And this is what they would have asked themselves. This is what they would have sung. We also can ask ourselves the same question. Because I would imagine if we look at the world around us, or even if we look at ourselves, it seems that the average Christian looks on worship, looks on God, looks on even dwelling with God, looks on their Christian faith as something of a vending machine. We know we need God, we know we need worship, we know we need to do these things. So it's very easy to walk up to the vending machine, put in our coins or our dollars, 
mash the buttons and receive what we would think would be a good walk. That's what we would do. That's what it seems that America and the church, at least in America, does. We go to worship, we go to God when we need it, but throughout the week, it doesn't seem to really have an effect on most people. And this is also true of our own lives, maybe not to that degree, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we do see that. It's very easy to go from Sunday to Monday, and in that transition, lose a right perspective or a right focus. And so David, who is very like much us, just as the people of Israel were very similar to what we are, asked this question, who shall sojourn with God? Who shall dwell with him? What must I do and what conduct allows me to be in his presence? David is asking the question that mankind has asked since the time we fell. We were created to dwell with God and to be in his presence, and when we fell, we lost it. And the whole plan of redemption was a way of bringing us back into such a way where we could dwell with God. But David is asking, since this was lost, since we're sinful, what must we do? And in the Old Testament, we see what it is to approach a holy God. We see that in Israel. We see that especially during the time of the Exodus when God brought his people out of the promised land and brought them to the desert and brings them to, the, to Mount Sinai and covenants with them. But how does this look? They can't just approach God. He's on this mountain and there's barriers set up all around it. And anything, animal or person, who touches the mountain would have been killed. In fact, only one man can go up into God's presence, and that's Moses. It seems like they didn't achieve this dwelling with God. In fact, what they found is that God chose to dwell with them in the tabernacle and temple, but this wasn't always good news for a sinful people. The fact of the matter is, for sinful people, the presence of a holy God is very dangerous. We see this played out again and again in Israel's history. When they did something wrong, when they sinned, when they conducted themselves in in an improper way and were punished for it. That's what it is to be approaching a holy God. And when we think to ourselves, this is also what we're doing. We are approaching a holy God. We need to ask this question, and David needed to ask himself this, this question. The tent that David references in verse 1 is the tabernacle, and it's God's house. And as you approach it, how did you need to live your life beforehand? I think we would understand this. If we were going to go meet the president, we would want to know what's the proper protocol. If we do X or Y, what's going to happen? Is the Secret Service going to tackle us? Are we going to be in trouble? How do you comport yourself in the presence of this leader? We would ask the same. How do you comport yourself before God? So what is the methodology of this psalm? How does it go about answering it? Well, in verses 2 through 5, it outlines the actions that a child of God must do to live with him. And it's structured in three sets, alternating between, one what, between what one must do in verses 2 and 4 and what one must not do in verses 3 and 5. 
You see, our conduct is very, very important to God. The conduct of his people is very, very important to God. And often we may hear the, maybe not charge, but the belief now that, well, that's Old Testament. You know, that was the law that they needed to keep, but we, we have a gracious God. Well, our God hasn't changed. The same standard of holiness applies. We must walk in obedience as well. And what we see here is the duty that a Christian must fulfill. And the emphasis on the, in this psalm is on the moral law. And mostly through the conduct of believers. Through your interactions with your fellow man. The methodology of this psalm at first seems kind of strange because you're asking the question, who shall dwell with God? And then all the answers that are given are, do this to your neighbor. Don't do this to your neighbor. To use that analogy again of the president, you wouldn't expect, well, what must I do to meet the president? And here, well, you must provide for your neighbor. You must not slander your neighbor. Well, you're thinking, what does that have to do with God? Well, if you remember back what seems ages ago to this summer when we went through 1 John, what we saw was that in loving our neighbor, we are loving God. In showing love to our neighbor, we are showing our love to our Father. In one respect, it's almost easier to comprehend being loving to God. He's God, after all. We must love him. Sometimes it's harder to love the sinners around you. And so what David is actually doing is he's raising the stakes. He's saying you want to be able to dwell with God and approach him, conduct yourself in this way to those around you. And whoever does not practice this righteousness is not of God. This is what John says, 1 John 3.10 says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So this is why we we look at the method, because this psalm without that could be confusing. Why is it focusing so much on our dealings with each other? It's because when we understand that loving one another is loving God, we get this psalm and what it's asking of us so then we have to look at well then what must be done and this is where we get into all the commands of the psalm the first criteria is that one must be blameless righteous and whole without blemish it's not a big one huh blameless righteous whole without blemish that's the first thing that must be done to dwell with god David didn't just pull any punches here, he just went right after it. That's what must be done. That's the one who can dwell with God, one who is that way. And says and does what is righteous. And this we could understand as who does God's law. Who keeps it. David could have provided a list of things we would have needed to meet that we could have almost checked off, it seems. He even could have given the Ten Commandments, but you see how that can also be be taken and twisted. 
Okay, to dwell with God, don't murder. Okay, got it. Don't commit adultery. Okay. Well, obviously, now we understand that that's not the intention of the Ten Commandments, that it goes much deeper than that, but if we were just given a list of these things to do that didn't really get at the heart issues, we might think we're doing pretty well, pretty good. It's like David says right away that it must be blameless. Verse 2 continues and conveys the need for holiness in walking, doing, and speaking, which is encompassing our whole life. That's what must be holy. It's something that's conveying a daily obedience to God's word. This isn't something that you can just do right before you go to the temple. The Israelites couldn't just do this right when they were on their way. This is something they needed to do throughout their lives. Psalm continues and says that the one who can dwell with God is the one who speaks the truth in his heart. What does that mean? Well, that means he's not just externally obeying God's law, internally he is as well. He speaks the truth into the very depths of his soul, and he is pure internally. He does not only do sin, he doesn't think sin. The one who can approach God isn't like a whitewashed tomb that looks good on the outside but inside is corrupt. And this is the first line of David's answer. And for the brave souls who think, oh, I've kept that, well, the psalm continues. Verse 3 goes on and now says what one must not do if they're going to dwell with God. One must not slander with his tongue. He doesn't go about defaming others, bearing false witness against them, speaking ill of them. Godly living involves taming the tongue and controlling it. We see this throughout Scripture. It's out of the overflow of your heart that your mouth speaks. It's through the tongue that we see what, where someone's heart is. And through slandering someone, we would see that they don't have love in their heart. We see that you can't speak in such a way that would bear the false witness of those around us. And I wonder how many of us can remember times in which this happens. Have you been in situations where you're with a group of people and someone is being critiqued or criticized or slandered or gossiped about? And what did, what did you do? What, did we, what do we do? The response of sinful man often is to pile on. You think, oh, that's great what you just said, but wait till you hear what I know about this person. This person said this. This person said that. This person is, is horrible. Very, very easy for us to fall into that trap. Gossip is very attractive to us. To speak ill of them. But doing something like this disqualifies one for being able to dwell with God. And yet again, we feel the weight of this and we think, how can I dwell with God then when I can't keep this? Or when I haven't kept this? This is such a temptation for us. It's probably why David mentions it. He was a man himself and would have known this. Verse 4 continues and switches back to the positive. No longer does it say what the worthy one must do, but rather what he must, what he must not do, but rather what he must do. Verse 4 says, Who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts. 
It might be translated differently here. Who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And we hear that and we think, well, what, what's going on there? What, do you mean, what, what, do you mean, what does it mean to despise a vile person? What this is getting at is, who do you look up to? Who do you model your life after? Who do you want to be praised by? It's very, again, it's very easy for us to look at celebrities, to look at athletes, to look at those we see on TV, even though in our workspaces we can look at the, that person who's very charismatic and funny. Often these people, though, are crass, are unloving. Often they provide most of their humor by tearing someone else down. And yet, we become almost mesmerized by them. We look up to them. But the one who dwells with God does not. He despises such a one, not in the sinful way, but he despises what that is and what that person is standing on. And then there's the flip side. That he honors those who fear the Lord. Now this at first might seem pretty simple. Okay, we get this. You honor the the godly among us. But in actual practice, this can be difficult. Think of that one person you may know who stands on what's right against the grain. And is that person praised for it generally? If a group of people are together and they're doing something that they shouldn't, and one person says, guys, this is wrong. This isn't right. It's the norm for everyone to say, we'll call him Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy, you're, you're absolutely right. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, generally, the norm is for that person to be slandered. To be attacked. While the one who dwells with God honors that person and stands with him. He lives according to that way. Often, though, what distinguishes our honoring is usually the attributes that would make us unfit to dwell with God. At least in my own life, that's often what I find. The things that would actually make us not able to dwell with him are the very things that I do and want to do. This is what we all feel and face. The last part of this verse says that the man of God will swear to his own hurt and not change. What does that mean? Well, it means that he will keep his word and uphold it even when it's not in his own best interests. He will keep his word. He will do exactly what he promised to do even when it's not going to work out well for him. Even when he knows it. He will keep his oaths. We might think then that, well, yeah, that's, we keep our oaths. I keep my oaths. One thing I don't do, though, is give an oath or give a promise when I think it's not going to work out well for me. When I'd be required to do something that makes me uncomfortable, I don't think, oh, I'm going to do that. Often we become, we don't even give our word to break. And again, we feel the weight of this psalm. Verse 5 continues and says, 
He who lends money to the poor without interest and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. And now David is getting at one of humanity's biggest idols in money. And what he's talking about here is not necessarily a condemnation of just charging interest flatly, but charging interest against one who is in dire straits, against a a fellow neighbor or brother who comes and is in trouble and you sense the time you can capitalize on this. He's saying, no, the one who dwells with God does not do that. His money is not the most important thing. The welfare of his brother is. He will not charge and try to further his own self and his own career, his own wealth at the expense of someone else. His priorities are right. Again, the conduct of this psalm heavily focuses on our love of neighbor and just keeps on going after it in certain ways that we would find ourselves in. And in daily ways, none of these things are that foreign to us. We grasp them all. I think that's actually pretty interesting that this psalm that was written that long ago is so easy for us to understand now. So if you're more concerned about the interests of others, well then, what about your security? If you're not furthering your own career, your own wealth after others, well, how can you stand? That's why the psalm ends the way it does and says, whoever does these things will never be shaken. It's in doing these things that make you able to dwell with God, and in dwelling with God, you will never be shaken. But then we have to ask this question, having gone through this psalm and what it commands, have we done it? Have we kept this? And I don't just mean to a certain degree. This is not, do your good works outweigh your bad? Not that even we could keep that. But no, the psalm is saying, if you've done this ever once, you can't dwell with God. Some of us might think, well, that was true once, but now, we, now we're sanctified. We've been saved by Christ, so now we, we can keep the law. Well, it's true that in our sanctification, we are now able to keep the law to a degree, but our standing before God still is not based on how well we're keeping the law. Because we can't keep it to the standard even now. We strive to, we try to, But we fall in all of these ways at times. So if we haven't done it, and this is the conduct that enables someone to dwell with God, well, we have a problem. The psalm starts out, well, who can dwell with God? And you could think of it as like a herald saying, who is able, who is worthy to dwell with God? No one. No one, it seems. Except one. There is one who did all of these things perfectly. There is one who was blameless and who did right. There is one who did not slander those around him or do evil to his neighbor or reproach his friends. There is one who despised the vile and honored those who feared God. There is one who so swore to his own hurt that he and yet drank the cup down to its dregs and fulfilled for us what we could not. There is one 
who will never be shaken. If we read this psalm with Jesus in our minds, all of a sudden it clicks. Who is able to dwell with God? Blameless, upright, didn't slander, swore to his own hurt and didn't change. And I think in that you can really clearly see what Jesus has done. He so kept his word knowing that what would be required of him, and he didn't turn from it. What was lost in Adam was regained in Christ. We should read this psalm and think, I can't keep this. I haven't kept this. That's right. But we do know one who did. We do know the one who brings us into God's presence because he is God himself. Now, I don't want to mute the call of this psalm. There's a danger sometimes in, in Reformed, Reformed preaching of hearing the gospel and then losing the, 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 the law, losing the standard, and we don't do that here. This psalm is a call to obey each and every one of these things. And that's not a standard that has become lax for us. It's just been fulfilled by another and then we follow after him and strive to do the same. And so we should feel the weight of both. That we haven't done this, we can't do it, and so we look to Jesus and then after looking to Jesus we now see that in him we imitate him. We show that he is in us by doing these very things. We seek to approach God and to approach his house and to worship him. And so we seek obedience. But that's not how we approach him. We don't come in and say, look at my deeds. Look at what I've done. No, we say, I enter on what Christ has done. That's how we respond. What conduct enables communion with God? Well, it should be asked a different way. It should be asked whose conduct enables communion with God, and it's Jesus. It's his conduct that enables us to dwell with him. Brothers and sisters, we are not worthy to be here even right now. We are not worthy in and of ourselves to sit in worship service, to have God dispense his grace to us. And yet here we are because of what Jesus has done. And so as we go out from here, as we go out into next week, as we go out to live, let this psalm dwell in your mind. Not only to point you to what Christ has done, but also to what we now do in our gratitude for that. We shall dwell with God because he dwelt with us. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we look at your word, we look at your law even, and what we see is a standard that we couldn't keep. We see something that we break daily. But what we also know is that in your word we see our Savior. We see that this psalm is something Jesus himself fulfilled. And in that we see the wonders of your gospel to us. But yet we also pray that we would not miss the call for our obedience here. 
that we would not miss the fact that you are a holy God and our conduct is very important to you. And so we pray that we would walk in obedience because we seek simply to please you. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Let's respond and sing of our great Savior.